Hey, Jay, whatever happened to Reverend Craig? Who? Uh, you know, Wolfsbane's jerk of a father. Oh, right, right, that guy. Um, yeah, I think he last showed up around maybe 2008. So he's probably due for a reappearance. That is profoundly unlikely. Oh, yeah? Why? Wolfsbane ate him. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 360 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. That's right, it's episode 360, which of course takes my brain to the Xbox 360. I remember when that came out, video game fans were still very partisan in terms of what consoles they liked. I guess that hasn't really changed. And there was this saying that they call it the Xbox 360 because you take one look at it and turn around 360 degrees. So you, you just spin around? Yeah, that's, that's the thing. It didn't, it didn't make any sense, and it made me giggle every time someone said that. Huh. Yeah, well, anyway, that aside, what is also significant about this episode is it's the last episode of a creator's run. We just had one of those with Warren Ellis's run of Excalibur, and this is the final Jeff Loeb X-Force story that we're going to be covering. God, the creative lineups are getting so much less problematic all at once. Uh, to be fair, we haven't really looked too much into the personal lives of the next set of writers, so I don't know, maybe they're terrible too. The fact that we haven't casually stumbled across extensive documentation of that terribleness speaks at least comparatively well. Uh, for real, yeah. Uh, John Francis Moore, please please don't be terrible. So the next run of X-Force is going to be John Francis Moore's. That's the controversial... Um, road trip era of the book and i am so excited to check it out because i've heard so much about it both good and bad and i've never actually read it that's the one where they go to burning man right uh they do yes well anyway we'll talk more about Loeb's run sort of uh as a whole at the end of this episode but first maybe we should talk about what came before so X-Force are the extremist teens ever too extreme, although they don't actually include the character Extreme, and they're not actually teens anymore. Yeah, yeah, they're like extreme young adults. That doesn't rhyme as much, though. Not even slant rhyme? No, no. Well, the team is still led by time-traveling pouch aficionado Nathan Summers, a.k.a. Cable, and luck-empowered wine mom Domino. The... Second in command, I guess technically third in command, but they keep on describing her as second in command, is Teresa Rourke. That's Siren, the daughter of Banshee, recently cured of some brainwashing at the Weisman Institute for the Criminally Insane. We also have Roberto da Costa, Sunspot, recently cured of his alternate evil personality, but not really, Rainfire. Got Tabitha Smith, a.k.a. Meltdown, a.k.a. Boomer, a.k.a. Boom Boom. Anyway, she makes time bombs. James Proudstar, Warpath, currently getting over his missing ex-girlfriend, Risk. Caliban, who has large muscles and a lot of heart, but not so much smarts. And finally, a warrior from the future of the Mojoverse named Gavidra Seven. Or possibly a regular, if troubled, young Earthling named Benjamin Russell. Uh, anyway, that's Shatterstar, who, as you can tell, is having a bit of an identity crisis since he was briefly captured by the villainous Games Master at the aforementioned Weissman Institute for the Criminally Insane. Not with us at the moment is Julio Richter, Richter, 
who used to be on the team but left because he felt uncomfortable with Cable's telepathy at the beginning of Loeb's run. Speaking of the Mojoverse, what's its deal? Okay, so the Mojoverse is a media-obsessed dimension run by the megalomaniacal Mojo and his spineless ones. And like we said, Shatterstar may have come from its future, but we do know that Longshot, a supernaturally lucky mulleted man, came from its present. Currently, Longshot and Dazzler, who I believe are married, are leading a rebellion against Mojo's forces in the Mojoverse, trying to free the world from Mojo and his murderous media. Ooh, alliteration. Will these two sets of heroes collide? Stay tuned! They will. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't have brought them up. Oh, well, true. Anyway, that brings us to X-Force number 59, Are You Now or Have You Ever Been? This is written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Anthony Castrillo, inked by Bud LaRosa, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And the, the title of this issue is weird as hell in context. It just doesn't make sense. Well, in that case, it sets the tone nicely for what will follow. But let's talk a little bit about the art. Like, we've seen Castrillo before, but we haven't much discussed his work. I kind of like it. I, I don't. I think he draws everyone like Paul Rudd. But Paul Rudd is very handsome and charming. Yeah, but he's difficult to distinguish from himself. I suppose that's true. And, like, you don't want Cable looking like Paul Rudd. Cable doesn't look like Paul Rudd. If I were Cable, I'd want to look like Paul Rudd. Would you, though? Would you really? I don't know. Cable seems to like being grumpy. But one thing I will absolutely give Castrillo is I think his style is an easy transition from Adam Polina, the uh, artist who we've seen as the primary artist on this run. Like, Castrillo's layouts are less interesting than Polina's genuinely fascinating, almost art deco stuff. But it's not jarring the way it sometimes is when you go from one artist to a fill-in artist or one artist to an artist that does a lot of their run also. The other thing that does Castrillo no favors is that the third issue of this arc has an artist who is much better tonally suited to the whole thing. Oh, I'm looking forward to talking about the art in the third issue because oh, that's a departure, yeah. Yeah, it is. Anyway, this is Jeff Loeb's final arc on the book. What does he do with that arc? It ruins everything. <laughs> I'm sorry. I I Look, it's... It's been kind of a rough week in the world at large, and in order to effectively talk about X-Men when I'm really distracted by things like ineffectual government response to a pandemic, um, I need to channel a lot of that frustration into, into you know, the thing that I'm looking at at hand. So um, I may be a little bit lot extremely, extremely unfair here, um, just for the record. On the other hand, this arc is bad and should feel bad. You are not wrong. Like, don't get me wrong, I do love confusing continuity, but this, Jay, this is like Leprechaun level, and I do not say that lightly. This isn't Leprechaun level, because the Leprechauns were goofy, but they weren't, like, aggressively contradictory of previously established canon for no reason. I mean, they were a little, but but not to this degree. This is, okay, maybe we should just get to it. What happens in these comics? Okay, so we open with Cable interrogating Shatterstar. He wants to know, who are you? And Shatterstar says, well, I'm Shatterstar. Well, I'm Benjamin Russell. And he has no idea which he is or what the hell is going on. And I'm definitely with him on the latter part of that. The Benjamin Russell thing started, I believe, when they all got arrested. 
and Shatterstar's fingerprints were on file and the police kept on insisting that he was some kid from Boston named Benjamin Russell. Well, and I think even before that, when Siren was at the Weissman Institute, when she was trying to infiltrate it to figure out what was up, uh, she went through their records and saw that there was somebody who looked exactly like Shatterstar named Benjamin Russell who had been a patient there. Right, yeah. So, like, Jeff Loeb's been building this up for a long time with a lot of care, and I can only assume he had a very clear, coherent vision for how this was going to play out, right? Can you assume that? I I don't know if you can assume that based on the evidence at hand. I sort of assume that he was just throwing darts at random onto a, a, a board with a bunch of little pieces of paper, some of which said things and some of which just had scribbles. I mean, I think this is where you're being more charitable. I was picturing something more along the lines of shrieking incoherently and smearing the wall with his own feces. This arc. Wow. It's just so incoherent. Okay, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves. And here's the thing. I don't mind comics being confusing, but but they need to they, they need to, to try. And I, oh, I'm just so mad at this arc right now. Maybe I'm really messed up by the world right now as well. Maybe that's influencing me too. I feel like this is an acceptable thing to take out our frustrations on. As long as we don't get let it get too personal, as long as we stick with the story. I I think that I think that we can we can just just absolutely lay into this. Okay. Um with with relatively little guilt. Okay. Well then, let's proceed and uh Jeff, um sorry about the wall feces thing. That might have been a bit far. Yeah, yeah, that was iffy. Well, anyway, Post-onslaught, Cable has decided that nobody with a potential second identity can be trusted, so he he really wants to get to the bottom of this whole Shatterstar Benjamin Russell situation. Yeah, that is a fair point, Nathan Summers. I mean, Nathan Winters. I mean, Dayspring. I mean, Ascani Sun. I mean, Soldier X. Okay, Cable has a lot of aliases, but no personality. Oh, that's true. Like, Shatterstar's got two personalities, and Nathan, uh, well, he... Mm. I like Cable. Cable's good in this era. Oh, I do too. I, I just think it's fun to make fun of him. Well, that's fair. He's He's got the Captain Britain thing going on here where he's just so hyper-competent and overpowered that I, I feel the need to trip him periodically. Yeah, no, I, I agree. When you're that badass, you have to be the butt of jokes at least some of the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, Richter at least is back to help, which is great. Um, and they definitely do some kissing off panel, which is good and important. And, um, they're, yeah, I, oh, I love them. They're, they're really, Loeb is much, much, much less committed to writing them as a couple. Um, so it's a little bit more in the subtext here, but it's there. Oh, it's absolutely there. And I think it's deliberate in this arc as well. I mean, there's this one panel where the narration describes uh, Richter as Shatterstar's, quote, very best friend. And in that panel, Richter and Shatterstar's reflection is sort of reflected, overlaid on this glass wall with Cable and Domino, who themselves are described as, quote, as close as two people can be. Like, that seems very deliberate. And that may not have been Loeb. That may have been Castrillo. I don't know. But regardless, it's there. And also in some of this dialogue like whether it's queer subtext or not the bond is just so heartwarming shatterstar is describing the situation now i'm told i'm not that person i'm benjamin russell a runaway from boston i do not recall ever being in boston do they have something there called red socks see they have fans who believe in them even when they're losing like you and me amigo they're just 
adorable. I love them so much. Like, even if they are just being written as friends sometimes, I still love them like that, although they're better as a couple. I mean, there are writers who think they're writing them as friends sometimes. Sorry, Rob. Those writers are incorrect. (laughs) Right. Anyway, the team as a whole agrees that they should be helping Shatterstar, not interrogating him. Come on, Cable. This is just like the time you put Wolfsbane in a straitjacket because she kept on having hallucinations of another universe. Right. And it turns out there was another universe. Well, maybe. I guess that was ambiguous. But point being, damn it, Cable, if you're in charge of these kids, uh, be less of a jerk. He's he's aggressively mistrustful. That's his personality. That's what he's got. Um, also, uh, Warpath is worried about the missing risk, um, which isn't actually particularly relevant, but, you know, comes up occasionally in conversation. Yeah, she'll be back. I mean, there's a little bit that I don't think uh, is even in the notes where she goes home having been rescued from the Onslaught crossover. Uh, I mean, not like the crossover, the events, although getting rescued from the crossover might not be the worst thing, um, by Blob and Mimic. Anyway, we'll get to that later. Not really relevant here, but Warpath is sad. Now, Cable is tapping multiple avenues to try to figure out what's going on. So in New York, Charlotte Jones discovers that all records of Benjamin Russell have disappeared. Um, Charlotte Jones, as you may recall, is the detective who was briefly dating Archangel. Uh, She also discovers that her colleagues are assholes, and I feel like the solution to this problem is don't be a cop. I mean, you know, that could take care of it. I I really like Charlotte Jones. I really like that Charlotte Jones and uh, Trish Tilby and, to a lesser extent, Opal Tanaka, like, are still around in this era. Agreed. Yeah, I, I wish they weren't forgotten later on, but I guess we can't keep all the characters around forever. Opal came back once when Iceman was evil. Oh, oh yeah, she did. That was in, um, was it Astonishing X-Men? Was that the Marjorie Lou run? I don't remember. I just remember that he kidnapped all his ex-girlfriends and locked them in a cave. Damn it, Bobby. There are better ways to handle your confusion about your sexuality. He was having some feelings. And an apocalypse seed. So anyway, the team heads off to Rutland, Vermont and the Wiseman Institute for the Criminally Insane, and they do this in in their their um, their hovercraft, which we see from below for the first time. And it's just a dick like there's no way around this. This is this is a penis and a pair of testicles that flies through the air. I mean, who the hell do they think they are? Bezos? I This is this is more dickish than that. Which is saying something. And I mean, it's just a silhouette. But the silhouette from that angle, based on how we see it otherwise, shouldn't even be that dick-looking. So I don't even know what's going on. Um, Except that apparently someone just decided it was time to lean in and just draw Darth Vader's techno-penis. Wait a minute. Does, does Darth Vader have a techno-penis? Like, I know he has techno-arms and legs because Obi-Wan Kenobi lopped those off on Mustafar when, when Kenobi had the high ground. Like, did he also just, you know, clip off Anakin's Johnson while he was at it? That's a... See, that's not actually a relevant detail, because even the parts of his body that aren't replaced with prostheses are covered in the the techno life support suit. So it would be visually indistinguishable either way. I guess so. I just want to know what's going on under that Sith Lord codpiece. I've never said that phrase in my life, but here we are. Here we are. Thanks, this arc. And that's the difference between us. (laughs) That right there. Otherwise, we could be twins. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so Siren mentions that she was at the Weissman Institute only days ago, which kind of underscores just how brief the Onslaught event was. Like, 
Which makes sense because so little happened, especially in Impact 2, but seriously, days ago, all of that, our months of coverage happened over the course of days? Yeah, yeah. This is the era of aggressively decompressed storytelling. I would say even violently decompressed storytelling. Yup. Storytelling that is dying of decompression sickness. Oh, jeez. That sounds really unpleasant. Yeah, it is. It's not a good way to go. So, once they get to the Wiseman Institute, Star and Richter pop out very briefly, and everyone else, I guess, circles in the dick ship to look for parking. Um, but they pick them up almost immediately, and I'm pretty sure this is because of an art error. Like, they get out, they say there's nothing here, and then they're back on the ship. So, once they're back on, once everyone's back on the ship, the ship is immediately ambushed by Gog and Gog and Magog. These are two guys from the Mojoverse whom we last saw in the X-Babies arc of X-Men, so that would have been number 46 and 47, uh, and whose identities swapped from from their originals. They showed up first in the Longshot miniseries. They're big, they're furry, they're extremely irascible. One is the father and one is the son, although again, which is which has, has switched over time. And they grab Shatterstar and teleport him away. Well, okay, so their appearances and identities have stayed the same, it's just their names have swapped. And to be fair, in the original Longshot miniseries, the red furry one, his name was a little confusing, like it kind of shifted over the course of the series. But they did just straight up reverse the last time we saw them, and, and that bothers me, because they're, they're cool character designs at the very least. And the red furry one was super creepy in the Longshot miniseries. True that. Now, Cable, being the sensible individual he is, dives after them and manages to catch the same teleport field. And the ship almost crashes, but doesn't, because suddenly, Longshot is flying it. Hey, it's Longshot! I love Longshot! So, we last saw Longshot all the way back in X-Men number 11, when he and Dazzler teamed up with the X-Men, and Mojo 2, the sequel, to finally defeat Mojo. And there's actually a story that happens between then and now. In Marvel Fanfare Volume 2, numbers 4 and 5, there's this Longshot story where Longshot and Dazzler and their rebellion recruit Major Domo and end up having to fight and defeat Mojo to the sequel. Because, of course, even though he looked like the good guy compared to Mojo, he also became terrible, and so they had to take him down. It's an okay story. That's the thing, like, I don't know if you've noticed this as well, Jay, or if this is just my take, but I love Longshot so much, I've been very clear about that on the podcast, and most of the time, he's just not very interesting. Like, I love him in his miniseries, I love him when he's a member of the X-Men, and then just occasionally after that. Like, a lot of writers just don't seem to know what to do with him. Yeah, he's often kind of a narrative gimmick who exists to briefly exposit on the situation the team has been dropped into for Mojoverse stories, which is pretty much what he does here, and just doesn't really have much else going for him in the way of personality or story. Yeah, I mean, I will say his character design is strong enough that he always visually livens up uh, whatever story he's in. Like, there's that, no question. And you know what? I love that mullet. I don't care what people think about mullets. I love that mullet. So what's Longshot's relationship to, to Shatterstar? Because that's, that's gone places. Oh boy. Okay, so that's going to get extremely complicated, as we've alluded to a couple times on the show. But as of this point, we've seen a few things happen. So... In X-Men number 11, Longshot and Dazzler at the end, Dazzler's pregnant, and they talk about what to name the baby, and Longshot suggests 
Shatterstar, which, you know, kind of makes sense. Shatterstar is from the future of the Mojoverse. I mean, okay, 100 years into the future, but, eh, you know, time, whatever. Long-lived and, you know, stuff happens. And so, yeah, at that point, things seemed pretty clear. Shatterstar is Longshot and Dazzler's kid. But in X-Men number 47, we see Dazzler, and she's not pregnant, and there's no baby. I think a character even comments on it. And so we're left to assume that maybe Dazzler miscarried, which, of course, makes us wonder, well, what the hell happened with Shatterstar? Was that him in the first place? He doesn't exist anymore. He hasn't been in the comics since then. Ah, hence Benjamin Russell. I don't know. Maybe that's what Loeb was going for here. No, no, I'm I'm just lying completely. Well, in X-Force number 51, we learned that Shatterstar has identical DNA to Longshot, which confuses things even more. So that's where we are right now. Well, I thought that guy kind of got worked out in Shattershot. Uh, only kind of. God, Shattershot was so confusing. That's where we see into the future of the Mojoverse and, like, an older Shatterstar. Anyway, the point is, it's going to change a lot. But all we know right now is that they're related to each other, and Longshot maybe is Shatterstar's dad, kind of. What eventually is sort of going to be established is that Longshot is Shatterstar's father... But he's also a clone of Shatterstar. So they're, they're ba- their family's basically a, a, a simple time loop. Yeah, kind of like the thing with the Summers from the Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, but even weirder. Yeah, that's just the name, though. I, they don't get into cloning for a few generations. Mm, true. So that brings us to X-Force number 60. I know you are, but what am I? Written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Anthony Castrillo, inked by Bud LaRosa, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And uh, I kind of love the cover here. Like, Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't know how many of our listeners are of an age to remember TV Guide, but this, this was a big deal. It was a magazine, this very thick but small magazine you would get like back in the 90s, and it would tell you what was on TV each week because the internet wasn't really a thing. I think it was in the 80s as well. I'm not actually sure when it started, but it had a very distinctive cover. And, like, that's what this is, right down to the X-Force logo, having been formatted exactly like the TV Guide logo. It's very charming. It's a really clever touch that kind of dates this at this point, as as you mentioned, um, in kind of great ways, actually. Oh, yeah. No, I feel awesome about that, as opposed to other stuff about this arc. Well, anyway, Cable and Shatterstar did indeed make it through the portal to the Mojoverse— And right now, they're being held upside down in giant machines using those, like, turbine manacles thing that the Marvel Universe loves for some reason. And Gog and Magog are trying to brainwash our heroes into obeying Mojo, who then abruptly shows up. To yell. Fighting my precious mind wipe, are they? Then turn up the volume! Turn it up until it comes out their ears! Man, I've missed Mojo. Have you missed Mojo, or have you mostly just missed yelling? Man, I've missed yelling. Longshot tells X-Force that it's okay. He knows what how they can follow. Um, So he takes them to Greenwich Village to Doctor Strange's house and has them break in. Domino points out that she's been in Greenwich Village a million times, and she's never noticed this place before. And Longshot says, hey, sometimes you just need to be lucky. So two things. Thing one... It's going to be made clear here that Longshot's powers are way more powerful than Domino's. They both have luck powers. His are bigger and badder. In future stories, his powers are going to get weird whenever he's around another probability manipulator. 
but not here. We actually see uh, a lot of that interaction in Gail Simone's Domino series when Longshot shows up at one point. It's fun. Thing two, this arc has so much lucky wordplay from Longshot. Like, most of his personality seems to be, he's a good guy, and anytime he can refer to the fact that he has luck powers, he will. Gets old real fast. It does, and I, I feel like we bad. Get it, we get it, dude, you're lucky. I, I feel bad about this, because I love Longshot, and he's just such a good person every time he's written, and so I don't want to, like, get down on him, but this is not my favorite Longshot. Too bad he wasn't lucky enough to find a thesaurus. Hey. So they're pulled in through the distinctive-looking Dr. Strangian skylight by some crimson bands with which we may be familiar, and they are greeted by one of the most stylish versions of Doctor Strange I have ever seen. Like, how do we describe this outfit, Jay? Flamboyant. It is, but like classily flamboyant he's got this red dressing gown with this giant fuck off collar he has this heavily patterned long vest underneath with it with its own giant collar he has this giant gargoyle candlestick he's holding and that sweet ass goatee dr strange looks awesome here he is an elegant gentleman and I love the way the background's done here. Like, normally I hate it when artists don't really draw backgrounds for scenes. It just feels lazy. It takes me out of it. But here we just have this blank background with a ton of floating candlesticks uh, all around our heroes. Like, it really does make it look super otherworldly. You got to imagine that the candlesticks are also singing quietly. What kind of songs are they singing? Just sort of wordless laments. Oh, okay. I was thinking it was I Saw the Sign or something. Maybe shrieking lightly. Occasionally. Shrieking lightly. You know, that would actually fit the uh, Jason Aaron Chris Pacello run of Doctor Strange pretty well. Like, Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum was so fucked up and creepy and awesome in that run. It reminds me of one of Jack Handy's deeper thoughts, which is, would we still cut down trees if they screamed? Well, maybe if they screamed for no reason. <laughs> so Doctor Strange recognizes Longshot. I mean, they worked together back in Longshot's miniseries. I, I do really love that this arc remembers that. In the light, I can see you have changed, Longshot. What manner of darkness could dim your bright spirit? War, good doctor. War. I fear the hundred-year war which history tells us will destroy my homeworld has begun. This is as this is to be distinguished from the hundred years war that took place between 1337 and 1453 and involved not the Mojo world and other parts of the Mojo world, but England and France. Oh yeah, this one's, uh, well, I don't know about better. It's different anyway. We also learn that this hundred-year war will end in both Mojo and Shatterstar's deaths. And the reason everyone knows this, of course, is because Spiral, Mojo's assistant-slash-henchwoman, is a bit of a time traveler, and so she can tell everybody what's coming. And she's been on both sides of this war. She keeps switching sides, basically, to whichever side seems like it's winning. Well, or whichever side seems like it aligns better with her goals at the moment. Yeah. So, in fact, in the Mojoverse, Shatterstar and Cable are being forced Clockwork Orange-style to watch a video of the end of the Hundred Year War, where, you know, Shatterstar and Mojo die. And in this, oh man, okay, so Shatterstar is wearing his original white outfit from his first appearance. Right. But he's supposed to die here, and if he dies here, he can't show up in New Mutants number 99. And also, in his history... We know, we've been told many times, he fought Mojo 5, not Mojo. Mojo was long gone by the time Shatterstar came to Earth-616. 
Well, with the outfit, we can assume that he's got more than one or a replacement was made. That's that's not fundamentally self-contradictory. Okay, but the Mojo 5 versus Mojo 1 thing makes no goddamn sense. Like, Correct. That contradicts everything. And I understand we're supposed to be questioning Shatterstar's past here, like whether he really is a warrior from the Mojoverse or if he's, he's just this dude, Benjamin. But this isn't like positing whether one or the other of those uh, those options is real. This is just taking one of the options and saying, now we're going to change like everything about it so it just doesn't tie in at all with anything we've been told before. Yeah, these changes aren't being made for narratively coherent reasons. They're just there. I'm going to go ahead and say because someone didn't do research or didn't decide that the research was important enough to incorporate. It actually reminds me a lot of the Psylocke Quanon mess from Nisieza's run that he then returns to to try to make sense of because he messed it up the first time. But there's no mm-hmm. returning to this. Like, Shatterstar's history has been retconned a number of times. What happens here seems to have been filed in the let us never speak of this again drawer. As it should be. As it should be. Well, between Doctor Strange's magic and Longshot's luck, the heroes do indeed head off to the Mojoverse. And when they arrive, they see the Rebellion's forces. They see a heavily armed Dazzler in a truly badass version of her costume. It's kind of like the Outback-era blue bodysuit, but with a badass jacket over it, because it's the 90s, and like a bunch of pouches and bandoliers and stuff, and she's got a headband and she looks rad. And we also see Quark. Hey, it's the ram-headed guy from the Longshot miniseries. I love Quark. He's also got luck powers. He's grumpy. He's wonderful. I approve of anyone who looks like a goat. Me too. It occurs to me, though, like, Dazzler's come a a long way. Like, do you remember that Dazzler the movie graphic novel from the beginning of her history that we covered? Vividly. Yeah, like, where she was dating her boss, and and there were all these, like, romancy, politically things going on, and now she's leading a rebellion, including of goat people, in an alternate dimension. I mean, I feel like the roots of that Dazzler were kind of already there. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. I do love Dazzler. Like, I really appreciate those characters that start out in one genre and end up in another. I mean, fucking Hellcat used to be a romance novel character. That's great. Can do both. Yeah. She married the son of Satan one time. So when they get to Mojo's headquarters, they're practically empty, and all they really see inside in this vast empty chamber is an unplugged television. And when they turn it on, it starts playing... The Cable and Shatterstar Show. So, okay, it's clearly an action show. I mean, we see Cable and Shatterstar charging forward, looking all badass, but I don't know. I hear that name. It could be any number of things. Like, what do you think this show could be? I mean, I, I think I think Odd Couple situation is, is the most obvious. Like, the two of them are sharing an apartment and getting into entertaining, you know, arguments between Shatterstar's youthful get-up-and-go-hood and Cable's general grumpiness and also which one of them leaves their underwear in the living room. Yeah, okay, okay, I could see that. Or, I don't know, I mean, it could be a variety show. He sings. He dances. We love it! Oh, I, I personally absolutely believe that Shatterstar knows how to do pretty much all the old Hollywood style dance routines like that he is he is a soft shoe aficionado oh shit yeah soft like it shoe. makes it makes narrative sense it does soft shoes and twin blades uh we could also do a late night talk show you know they interview celebrities and have musical guests and stuff like Shatterstar's the charming host and cable is the snarky sidekick or the band leader he does like leading things 
what kind of music would that band play? Probably something old-timey. Thrash metal? Not what I would expect for Nathan Dayspring Ascanius and Summers, but, you know, he's got a multifaceted personality. Time traveler. You gotta keep him on their toes. Or maybe the Cable and Shatterstar show is just basically being Puppycat, like, exactly? Nah, because if you look at their personalities, it would pretty much be Puppycat and Puppycat. I mean, I would watch that. It would be over so fast. No, oh, that's true. So much blood. Anyway, what's really going on here is that the Cable and Shatterstar show isn't just a television show. In fact, Cable and Shatterstar have been digitized and inserted into the television. Like fucking Mike TV what? from Willy Wonka. I'm sorry, I can't accept this. This is too silly. You know, this part I'm okay with. Mojo is a silly, if terrifying, villain. He would absolutely do something like that. And the thing is, it works out pretty well for him because all of Earth is being forced to watch this. They see the show and they get kind of brainwashed by it. They can't change the channel. And Mojo is siphoning off their, I don't know, couch potato energy to become more powerful. Which, you know, for a media-obsessed guy from a media-obsessed dimension, that makes sense. Sure, why not? The thing is, though, every time it cuts to the screen of the Cable and Shatterstar show, like at multiple times when we're in that chamber and on the TVs of people who are watching it, it's just the same damn image. It's just the two of them charging forward in the exact same positions. Oh, that's not the same image. That's 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 the show. Like, they just charge forward all the fucking time. That's it. Oh, man, 24-7, charging forward. Like, the camera's on some kind of a dolly at the same pace, just going backward, following them. And yelling. You know, that would be a terrible camera angle for a video game. I remember at the beginning of Crash Bandicoot, you're running toward the screen away from something at one point, and I just kept falling into holes all the damn time. I love that. I love the idea of making a video game that's just deliberately unplayable because of that. I think it's been done many times, but probably very few of them deliberately. Yeah, see, the difference with mine is that it would be on purpose. Oh, I don't want to buy that game. But you would. Oh, I would, because I'd have no choice. Damn it, Mojo. Exactly. Ooh, has Mojo ever gotten into video games? I feel like that would be a really dangerous and interesting direction for him to go. Uh, you know, I not that I can think of, but I may be forgetting something, because that does seem like an obvious direction, right? Yeah, yeah, it really does. Oh, shit, now I'm ma- imagining, like, Animal Crossing, but it's the X-Babies? That sounds adorable. Right. All right, uh, Nintendo, call us. Actually, don't. You seem very litigious, and I'm sure we've done something you would sue us for. Nintendo, call Marvel. Fight it out among yourselves. Yeah, yeah. No matter who loses, we win. Anyway, that brings us to X-Force number 61, the climax of the arc. Ask me no more questions, and I'll tell you no more lies. This is written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Kevin Lau, inked by Andrew Papoy, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Well, here we are. I, okay, so first of all, this this issue is nonsense, and I don't like it, and I don't want to talk about it, but the art's delightful. It is a hell of a departure. Kevin Lau is intensely, intensely manga-styled, like, so manga-styled, like, I would say even more than Joe Matarera. Oh, definitely more than Joe Matarera. Like, this is, it's, it's... With Joe Matarera, like, it's influence you can see. With Kevin Lau, it's, it's more... It, it looks more like American superhero comics influenced manga. Yeah. 
I don't know. It takes it a little too far, in my opinion, uh, as far as the intense gender dimorphism, especially in characters' faces. Like, all the men are these buff, craggy monstrosities, and all the women are these rounded, unlined, adorable anime girls with giant goddamn eyes. Like, they look like they're from two different art styles, the men and the women. Except for Shatterstar, who has enormous sparkly eyes. Well, I mean, that makes sense. That totally scans. Like, he should have enormous sparkly anime eyes. He totally should. And I do love the way Lau draws Sunspot. Like, he makes Sunspot's weird armor harness look like a goddamn jet plane, and it's awesome. And I especially like the way Lau draws Spiral's outfit. It's this, like, asymmetrical fantasy nonsense version of her standard outfit, which is already awesome. Like, this is probably my favorite look for Spiral maybe ever, and that's saying something. So as the world watches, Shatterstar informs Cable that today is the day that he, Shatterstar, dies. And this does not make a ton of sense, but he's he's all in, and Cable is is not really all in. Cable thinks that, that time travelers really need to bear in mind that nothing is set in stone, and also he's totally not going to let his little buddy die. Right? But then there's a great big fight, and Mojo stabs Shatterstar fairly thoroughly. Okay, this is actually kind of cool. Mojo knows Shatterstar is supposed to kill him, so he crams Shatterstar into a simulation of those events that he can tweak so that he doesn't die, and Shatterstar does. And if you die in the TV, you die in real life, I guess, so then Mojo is safe 100 years in the future, even though that's supposed to be Mojo 5, damn it. Dubious. Now, the team who are watching this on the, on the monitor um, back in Mojo's headquarters are all very sad until Spiral shows up and says, hey, you know, there is a way that we can save Shatterstar. So Longshot and Siren leap into the TV with her, and Richter is supposed to come with them. It looks like he comes with them, but is back with the team when they show them later, so I guess doesn't. Uh, maybe he jumped for the portal and grabbed Siren's hand and then tripped and fell on his pretty face that looks like Paul Rudd, or at least it would if it was the last artist, and now it just looks like a craggy anime guy. No one's chin is as large as Longshot's in this issue, though. It's an impressive chin. Like, Longshot was always supposed to be a pretty boy. Shatterstar here is a pretty boy. Great. Longshot should be too, but instead he looks like, I don't know, somebody from Fist of the North Star or something. Just has a really, really large chin. It's, it's really impressive and memorable. That's where he keeps his luck. While the rest of X-Force holds off Mojo's troops, Team Spiral, now plus Cable and Shatterstar, teleport back to the Weissman Institute. Okay, but before we get to that, in the fight scene with the rest of X-Force, there is this panel that is just boom-boom, crotch-first, under-boob, very visible, like, posing badassly. With her pants unbuttoned. With, with her pants a little bit unbuttoned, like she's Yuffie from FF7, yeah. It's, uh, it's just so manga that I just, I, I just have to accept it. Like, okay, I guess this is how women are going to be drawn here. So be it. No, it's kind of uncalled for. Well, I mean, yes, but so is a lot of the way women are portrayed in a lot of manga. And a lot of American superhero comics. Yeah, well, okay, that's a good point. So once they're at the Wiseman Institute, Spiral orders Siren to find Benjamin Russell. Apparently the story of this guy, who looks exactly like Shatterstar, is that when his mute power manifested, he went comatose and he's been on life support ever since. And he's presumably brain dead, because per Longshot, there is a way to transfer a soul or a life essence from one body to another, so that's what they do with Shatterstar and Ben. Okay, um, that's, that's not something we've ever seen with Mojoverse people. I mean, they have, like, two hearts and hollow bones, but that's a new one. But you know what? Fine. I'm, I'm fine with that. They keep it in the hollow bones. Oh. Oh, or maybe in the chin. Uh, I guess just Longshot has a chin that big. 
But this reminds me so much of the post-credit scene, or maybe pre-credit scene. Anyway, the scene at the end from X-Men 3, where Xavier has been killed by Phoenix, and then he manages to transfer his mind into a comatose patient, which we will later find out looked exactly like him, like also looked exactly like Patrick Stewart. That's ridiculous. And this is ridiculous, too. Seriously, what are the odds that just some random dude looks exactly like Shatterstar, who doesn't really look exactly human? Like, I know Benjamin Russell is supposed to be a mutant, and mutation can make uh, people look physically different, but exactly like Shatterstar? Down to the eye tattoo. Oh, that's a really good point. Or maybe he just retattoos his eye as soon as he's transferred. I don't know if we get a close-up of Benjamin Russell's face before he gets Shatterstar sold. Now, Spiral also, for some reason, claims that she was deeply attached to both Shatterstar and Benjamin Russell. This will never, ever be further developed, by the way. No, no, it it won't. The thing is, we are at the end of a creator's run, and we often do see plot lines that one creator brings up dropped by subsequent creators. Like, you leave breadcrumbs, maybe your successors do something with them, maybe they don't. So this I'm okay with. This I don't have a problem with. It is... Unfortunate that this story was confusing enough that nobody wanted to deal with it, and thus even the kind of cool, interesting parts don't go anywhere. But yeah, it's it's a mess, and so we never find out what Spiral's talking about here. Like, we know why she has a bond with Longshot. She used to be Ricochet Rita, that whole thing. But Shatterstar? I Now, Mojo chases after our heroes, but he does it by going through the digital TV space, and Caliban smashes the TV with him still in it. While somewhere, the Games Master watches and laughs. Right, because the Games Master was the one that ran the Wiseman Institute and told Shatterstar that he was really Benjamin Russell and confused him for reasons. But but wait a minute, Shatterstar didn't need to go into Benjamin Russell until Mojo trapped him in a TV and killed him in a version of the future, and Games Master wouldn't know that, and why, even if he did know it, why would he do any of this? Why is any of this happening? It feels like it should be a time loop, but it's not. Right. And part of that may just be that this is never addressed again. But like, okay, you've written a run on a comic. You have your climactic story arc. And sure, you want to leave some interesting, intriguing stuff for subsequent writers. But shouldn't you attempt to resolve like one of the biggest parts of that story arc? Shouldn't you attempt to make something you've been foreshadowing for like half your run go anywhere? I I can't answer that, man. So are are we are we willing to say, Jay, that in terms of aggressively mangling continuity, that this is worse than the fucking leprechauns from that Generation X Cassidy Keep story, the story that drove us nearly mad? I'm not going to say that it mangles continuity more badly. I am going to say that it is overall worse. Yeah, that's true. The the leprechaun story was was charming. I don't know. This has charming parts. I, I think. But it mangles a more substantial part of continuity. Like, seriously, Shatterstar, his his continuity is, is almost unusable at this point. And like, yeah, later on, a lot of this will be made sense of, but only by pretty much ignoring this entire arc. Like, ignoring the whole Benjamin Russell, Games Master, mojo at the end of the Hundred Year War thing. Okay, so this just goes in the Leprechaun box. I think this goes in the Leprechaun box. Jeff Loeb... Think about what you've done. And actually, we should think about what Jeff Loeb's done in general. This is the end of his run. He had a decently sizable run. It was number 44 to 61. That's like a couple of years-ish. So what do we think? Very little, honestly. I 
was trying to think of like really memorable points in his run. And I just didn't pull any up. Like it's not notably terrible except for this arc, but it's just not much of anything. It's kind of beige. I mean, it's more purple and yellow, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. Like, stuff happens, but none of it really takes the characters in directions that are all that new or interesting. Like, we have a return to the status quo in some ways. I mean, X-Force is living in the X-Mansion like they're the new mutants again, but even that's not really examined very much. We do have some changes, like Warpath trying to get out of the shadow of his older brother. Although, frankly, I hate that haircut. That's a terrible haircut, yes. Uh, Sunspot being separated from the Rainfire persona, which I would like to point out, Jeff Loeb never fully explains what happened there. I guess, I don't know, I mean, the most interesting character change for me is probably Boom Boom. Her getting so frustrated after being manipulated by Sabretooth that she kind of goes wild and stops thinking about consequences and closes herself off even more than she was before. Like, that's genuinely interesting. That I liked. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And, you know, the purple and yellow costumes, pretty good. I know that's, you know, more artist than writer. Probably credit goes to Polina there, but I I like that look a lot. And with that, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, what comics had unexpected resonances for you based on the time in your life when you read them? Uh, Daredevil Volume 3, Number 22. Oh, that was the Mark Wade run, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's part of part of the the two uh, Wade volumes. So good. For me, okay, this is going to get a little personal, but Buffy the Vampire Slayer season 10, uh, that's the canonical continuation of, uh, of the show. So that season is kind of all about learning to let go of things that have ended to like accept that they're gone. And I read that very early on uh, as we were getting divorced um, in one sitting on a very long flight, and it was kind of exactly what I needed. It was intense and challenging, but in a way that was necessary, I think. More recently, X-Men The Onslaught Revelation. Uh, In this awful two years we are currently still going through, I really needed the life-affirming, optimistic philosophy that it describes. And I guess that's not exactly unexpected, because comics aren't written in a vacuum, and Cy Spurrier certainly knew that the world was a challenging, terrible place when the story came out. But it's still, uh... It was kind of an important read for me. Like that, I, I was turning that one over in my head for a long time, and I think I, uh, I think it helped a lot. Comics do that. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, You've talked before about how over time the comics depicted Wolverine's healing factor as being more and more powerful. Has his sense of smell had a similar change in power over time? It has not. It has always been pretty ludicrous. I mean, yeah, there are exceptions here and there, but overall, he can kind of use it for whatever he needs to. That said, it's not Earth-616, but in the Ultimate Universe, it did get more ridiculous than it was originally portrayed. At one point, the Hulk rips Wolverine in half, and he has to, like, go find his legs, and he is able to specifically smell that his legs have been thrown four miles away. Like, okay, being able to smell that they're over in that direction really far, sure, Four miles away specifically? Like, he could pinpoint anything with that. It's a fucking scrying spell. In this case, for his severed legs. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Today, let's hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. Good try, Dave Lynch. Following in EK's footsteps was a smart move for all the good it'll do when you come up against the exact same roadblocks they hit, and likewise unprepared. 
Oh, except I guess you do have that false sense of confidence going for you, don't you? I'm sure that'll help a lot. Really. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode, along with original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free... Check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, it's all villains all the time. In the Sabretooth and Mystique miniseries. Mystique.